So here I am again. Um, Pastor Mark is, is still a little under the weather, he, but he actually is, is doing uh, like a lot better. He's, he's doing great. Um, but earlier in the week, we just weren't sure where he was going to be. So I actually volunteered um, to do this uh, just to give him a little bit more of a break. So I'm up here again with you, and I'm happy to do it. Um, so I just want to say something about, uh, about our church for a second here. I, I don't know if you guys have noticed, but it seems like more and more churches are kind of... Um, kind of deviating from this concept of teaching through the scripture, right? It seems like more and more churches are, are getting away from what's considered expositional preaching, and they're, they're going more into what's called topical preaching. And what topical preaching is, it's, it's, it's like sermons, you know, specifically about marriage or specifically about relationships or work or, you know, five ways to be a better Christian or three ways to show love to those people you dislike, things like that. And there's nothing wrong with those things. In fact, just saying them, I'm like, I need to hear all of those sermons, right? Um, but in doing so, there's something that happens that's probably unintentional, um, but that is a negative side effect of, of doing that, which is you, you unintentionally end up um, uh, maybe missing some key components of what the scripture has to say. Uh, it, it can be a good thing, but at the same time, you know, a, a church that only teaches topically can exclude books or exclude theological concepts or life issues that you would never really choose to enter into or that a pastoral team might not choose to teach about. And that's because some things in the scripture are just inherently challenging for us. So we choose as a church to teach expositionally, which is just a big word to say we go through books of the Bible, uh, book at a time, uh, chapter time, passage at a time, um, because we want to teach straight through scripture. So when you teach straight through scripture, something... um, Sometimes it happens where you encounter a passage or a, or a verse or a concept or an idea or a command or an exhortation or a challenge that you don't want to hear in the moment. And, and it's something that could be unexpected. It could be challenging. It might just be straight up difficult to hear. And so it's no surprise that so many churches are, are moving away from that and going with topical because uh, it's, it's a lot easier to grow your church big if they leave feeling good about themselves. And when you teach the scripture, oftentimes you leave feeling challenged or convicted. And um, so we're not necessarily concerned as a church about being the biggest church in town or about having the most seats or the most money in the bank. We're concerned about not growing uh, big and wide, but growing deep. And I think teaching through the scriptures is how we do that. And so our goal here is to not have the biggest church, but to move people from this life where they're kind of filling it with their own personal desires and what pleases them, but having people now thinking about their life, moving from that life to a life where they're finding their joy and fulfillment in Christ, where they're, they're living for Christ. We want to be a church that makes disciples who are more interested about what it means to look like Christ, even if it's challenging, than to just be pleased when they walk out the doors. And so... I want to say thank you to two groups. One, I want to say thank you to the pastors and the teachers in this church, Pastor Mark, Pastor Dave, everybody who teaches the Bible in this way as we go through Scripture together. And also say thank you to you guys for coming each and every week to potentially hear a message from the Scripture that is confronting to your sin, challenging for you to hear, because that's the way in which you're going to grow. And so I, I thank you and commend you for coming each and every week to hear the Word of God taught in that way. So thank you. Well, with that being said, we are going to uh, be starting the book of Colossians next week, and the way we're going to do the book of Colossians to start off is actually we're going to be doing a reading service where we actually let the scripture speak for itself. So we're going to read through the entire book of Colossians, 
uh, do some prayer through Colossians, some worship uh, in response to Colossians for our service next week, which is our reading service. So I encourage you to read through the book of Colossians. We are so excited that we printed it on the front of the bulletin, even though we're still in Esther this week. Uh, or we just made a mistake. I, I, I'll let you choose um, which one it was. I think we were just really excited. Um, but that's, that's starting next week, not this week. Um, and then also, starting next week, we're going to um, gather together before each of the services and pray for our Heath Church plant that is launching in just a few short weeks. So for the next two weekends, we're going to get together upstairs in 210 um, with a group from the prayer team and uh, with Pastor Mark and a few other uh, of us on staff just to get together with you guys and just pray and ask that the Lord bless what they're doing in Heath. So if you guys would join us for that, it would be great. So with that, we're going to jump into the book of Esther and finish up the book of Esther. Um, we're going to be finishing up chapters 9 and 10. And I want to do just a, a, a real brief recap of, of the last few chapters here. Essentially what's happened is the, the plot of Haman has been foiled. Haman has been taken out of the picture, executed, uh, and uh, all of his possessions and his title have been given to Mordecai. And the decree that still stood in place from Haman to wipe out the Jews is now being essentially taken over by this new decree written from Mordecai and Esther in the name of the king that allows the Jews to defend themselves. All right, So the decree has now been written for them to defend themselves and in chapters 9 and 10 we see the effect of that decree taking place. So I'm going to read through the entirety of chapter 9 and 10. It's a lot of reading so you guys stick with me on this. And I'm going to warn you right now I'm going to skip three verses because... Those three verses are full of names, verses 7, 8, and 9. I can't read any of these names. These Persian names are killer. It just looks like a bunch of cheeses to me. I got Parmesan, and there's a dolphin in there. I don't know, Zazathra. I don't, I don't know what's going on. So I'm going to mess that up, so we're just going to not go there, and we're just going to skip that, so just be prepared. So, um, but with that, let's just dive in, and let's read through this, wrap up the story of Esther, and see, see what the Lord has for us. Starting in verse 1, chapter 9. It says, now in the twelfth month, that is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day when the king's command and edict were about to be executed, on the day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, it was turned to the contrary, so that the Jews themselves gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand before them, for the dread of them had fallen on all the people's. Even all the princes of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and those who were doing the king's business assisted the Jews because the dread of Mordecai had fallen on them. Indeed, Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man, for the man Mordecai became greater and greater. Thus the Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying, and they did what they pleased to those who hated them. At the citadel in Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, all these guys, and the ten sons of Haman, the sons of Hamadathia, the Jews' enemy. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. On that day, the number of those who were killed in the citadel of Susa was reported to the king. The king said to Queen Esther, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the ten sons of Haman in the citadel in Susa. What then have they done to, in the rest of the king's provinces. Now, what is your petition? It shall be granted to you, and what is your further request? It shall also be done. Then Esther said, If it pleases the king, let tomorrow also be granted to the Jews who are in Susa to do according to the edict of today, and let Haman's ten son, sons be hanged in the gallows. 
So the king commanded that it should be done, so and an edict was issued in Susa, and Haman's ten sons were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa assembled also on the 14th day of the month of Adar and killed 300 more men in Susa, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces assembled to defend their lives and rid themselves of their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. This was done on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and, and made a day of feasting and rejoicing. But the Jews who were in Susa assembled on the 13th and 14th of the same month, and they rested on the 15th day and made it a day of feasting and rejoicing. Therefore, the Jews of the rural arrows who lived in the rural towns made the 14th day of the month of Adar a holiday for rejoicing and feasting and sending portions of food to one another. Then Mordecai recorded these events, and he sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to celebrate the 14th day of the month of Adar and the 15th day of the same month annually. Because on those days, the Jews rid themselves of their enemies, and it was a month which was turned from them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and rejoicing and sending portions of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Thus the Jews undertook what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, the son of Hamadithia, the Agagite, the adversary of the Jews, had schemed against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pur, that is, the lot, to disturb them and destroy them. But when it came to the king's attention, he commanded by letter that his wicked scheme, which he had devised against the Jews, should return on his own head, and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore they called these days Purim, after the day of Pur. And because of the instructions in this letter, both what they had seen in this regard and what had happened to them, the Jews established and made a custom for themselves and for their descendants and for all those who allied themselves with them so that they would not fail to celebrate these two days according to their regulation and according to their appointed time annually. So these days were to be remembered and celebrated throughout every generation, every family, every province, and every city. And these days of Purim were not to fail from among the Jews, or their memory fade from their descendants. Then Queen Esther, daughter of Habahil, with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm this second letter about Purim. He sent letters to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the king of Ahasuerus, namely words of peace and truth, to establish these days of Purim in their appointed times, just as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had established for them. And just as they had established for themselves and for the descendants with instructions for their times of fasting, uh, and their lamentations. The command of Esther established these customs of Purim, and it was written in the book. Now King Ahasuerus laid a tribute on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the accomplishments of his authority and strength, and the full account of his greatness of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of Chronicles and the kings of Merd, Meda, and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second only to King Ahasuerus, and great among the Jews and in favor with many of his kingmen, one who sought the good of his people and who spoke for the welfare of his whole nation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this, this book of Esther that we've had the chance of studying for the last few weeks. And Lord, we're, we're grateful that we can see your hand in the midst of the story and, and, and hear what you have done for your people and how that, uh, those realities uh, get applied to us as your people now. And so we just ask for your provision as we teach uh, through this last few chapters, Lord, that we would understand what you're trying to tell us about who you are and how much you love us. In Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen. Now, essentially what's going on in, in these last few chapters is uh, the edict has been given, and now this is the story of the Jews defending themselves. And so uh, the, what, what we see here is this complete reversal of the edict of Haman. What was planned originally is now completely turned on its head in totality. There is not one thing about the original edict that stands in place that has not been flipped over. Okay? And so we see this great reversal of, 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 of Haman trying to choose this date for casting lots to destroy the people of, uh, of Israel now to be this time of great celebration for the Jews. And it's a time of victory that God has for his people. And you see God fulfilling his promises to his people. And you see this concept that is over and over again in the Old Testament. This idea that's stated in Jeremiah 30. It says, therefore, all who devour you will be devoured. And all your adversaries, every one of them, will go into captivity. And those who plunder you will be for plunder. And all who prey upon you, I will give for prey. This idea that no one can stand against God and his promises and his people. If God is the one that is faithfully providing and protecting his people, no one can stop that from happening. He is faithful to fulfill his promises. It appears in the story that when Haman chose this day, he, he chose this day off of pure luck. The idea of casting lots or casting lot or pur, as they call it, is just this idea of, of picking a date for which the destruction of the Jews would happen. And it seems that it's mere happenstance. But as we read in the story, it's not just happenstance. This is uh, the exact day that God chose for his people to be saved from their enemies. So what appears to be mere luck is not. It's actually the sovereign hand of God at work and at play in this story. So what was intended for their complete destruction is now not just their day of deliverance and survival, but the story of God's ultimate provision for his people to the point where they're thriving. They're actually thriving. And we see, we see this in the story in a handful of places. We actually see it in the beginning of verse 3, where it says, All of the princes of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and those who were doing the king's business, assisted the Jews... Because of the dread of Mordecai had fallen on them. It's not just that the Jews are out there defending themselves, but the, all the royals of all the land of Persia are there assisting the Jews in the defeat against their enemies. It's not that the Jews are having a hard time assembling. They're literally having the nobles of the land assist them to carry out this decree. Complete reversal of what was originally intended. We see it again in verse 5 where it says the Jews did whatever they pleased to their enemies. And that's not intended to be a statement of saying they, they were able to torture or be cruel or unkind to their enemies in the sense that they were being harsh towards them in their defeat of them. It's a statement that is meant to show the complete reversal of what happened. Because in chapter 3, King Ahasuerus actually gives to Haman the authority to do whatever he pleased to the people, to the Jews. And now we see here in the last section that God's people are given the authority to do whatever they please. It's a complete reversal of what was intended for their destruction is now for their victory. In verse 7, we see that the ten sons of Haman were destroyed, and this is also important to show the complete victory because back in this day, they, the, the ten sons of Haman would have tried to avenge Mordecai and the Jews for taking out Haman. 
And so by taking out the ten sons, they're showing there is no chance that anybody could come up against the Jews anymore, that their victory is total in this sense, that they're wiped out in entirety. And we see it in a few more places, too. It talks about how many people the Jews were able to destroy. It says 75,000 of their enemies. So essentially, think of all of those people were going to destroy the Jews in that land, and they were able to wipe them all out. All of the number that were against them that were there for the destruction are now gone. And Esther even goes so far to say that in the Susa, in, in the main area, the first day they were only able to get a, a few hundred of them. And so she asked for one more day to make sure that the, those that were in the capital city would not be able to do anything against them. So they, she asked for one more day from the king to make sure that there was absolute, total victory over their enemies. And that's what we see. Now you may have noticed that there's this phrase that gets repeated over and over again in, in this section, and I just think it's interesting. It says, they did not lay their hands on the plunder, right? And every time I read this, I completely read it like a pirate, just so you guys know. I, I literally voice it as a pirate in my head. So why, why is this phrase important? Why does it say three times, but they didn't lay their hands on the plunder? They didn't lay their hands on the plunder. They didn't lay their hands on the plunder. Well, it's because the, the Jews here were careful not to make the material gain the reason for their action, right? The Jews were, not care- were careful not to make the material gain the reason for their act- action. They were simply defending their right to live. Right? Now, there also may be a reference that would have been fresh in the minds of these people back to what we see in 1 Samuel 15, where Saul disobeys God in attacking his people and actually takes the plunder from the Amalekites when he's not supposed to. And so they want to avoid that situation where God then disciplines Saul because of that. So they want to take this opportunity as it is, an opportunity for their freedom in the midst of this people. And so throughout the rest of the verses, we see essentially an educational piece for for those of Jewish descent, seeing how this holiday and this feast of Purim gets established, This, this recalling of this retelling of the events of how this became a holiday in the life of the Jews. So essentially what's going on is God's people have been saved. They weren't just given the upper hand. They weren't just allowed to win by a narrow margin. They're not just spared to die another day. They were given total and complete victory in this situation over their enemies. And the victory is given to them by their faithful and sovereign hand of God, which we talked about last week. If you remember from last week, we talked about how God in this story is faithful to fulfill his promises to his people. And he's in complete control, complete sovereignty to be able to enact those promises for his people. No matter how dark the circumstances may seem, how difficult they may be, God is faithful and sovereign to deal with those situations. And we see God fulfilling his promise to his people, something that started way back in Genesis when he gives his initial promise to Abraham. He says, I will bless those who bless you, and the ones who curse you, I will curse. Those who come against the Jews will have that be completely reversed back onto them as initial promise from God. And so God is faithful to fulfill his promises as early back as in Genesis. The book of Esther should teach us that we as his people should not be fearful in the midst of opposition, persecution, difficulty. Instead, we should boldly trust in God's faithfulness and his sovereignty and his timing, trusting the whole time that God's presence is going to be with us, and his favor is going to be for his people. And we could just leave it there. We could just say, trust God. See, in this story, God showed up, and he'll show up for you, so trust God. 
But just like last week, that's something that's a lot easier to say than it actually is to do. It's a lot easier to say, trust God, or I'm going to trust God, or I should trust God, than actually doing it. All of us know that we need to trust God. We should trust in his promises, trust in his provision, trust in his care for us, trust in his faithfulness, trust in his sovereignty. We all know we should trust in him, but at times it feels like we can't trust in him. Even though we know what we need to do, we fail to find the strength to do it. And I want to talk about why that's the case. Why is it the case that faith can be so precarious at times? That your faith can be so lacking in moments in your life? Why is it sometimes so difficult for us to trust in God? Is there something wrong with us? Are we broken? What's going on? Why is it so hard to trust in God? Let me propose this. The reason why I think it's so difficult sometimes for us to trust in God is simply because we forget who God is. We forget who He is. I'm not saying that we forget that God exists. I'm not saying that we forget important information about God. I'm not saying that we, we, we've, you know, we're running from God or even ignoring Him. I'm, I'm saying that sometimes we forget who God is. Right? Not that God is or what God is or how God is or where God is, but who He is. I'm talking about His character. I'm talking about the goodness of God. I'm talking about the kindness of God, the gentleness of God. I'm talking about His patience his steadfastness, his mercy towards us. I'm talking about the way he shows love to us, his loving nature, the grace that he has shown to us, the truth that he's revealed to us. All these things are inherent in his nature. And you may be thinking, how can we forget that? That doesn't seem like something that would be easy to forget. How can we forget that? But I actually think it's easy to forget that. I think it's actually an easy thing to forget. But maybe, maybe forgetting is not actually the right word, though. Maybe it's not that we forget who God is. It's that there are experiences in our lives that actually seem to contradict who God is from our perspective. So it's not that we forget who God is, but that there's something that happens to us that makes us doubt who God is or question who God is, something that seems to contradict his character. We, believe to, we begin to believe that, that God is someone other than who he says he is or who we believed him to be because of certain circumstances in our life. Now, I, I remember this, um, this time I was in Target um, with my daughter Allie um, when she was about one years old. And we were in the toy section walking around Target, probably looking for a toy for someone's birthday party or something. And um, Kelly was there with me, and I just remember holding, you know, Allie in the typical lazy dad hold, and Allie must have spotted something on the bottom shelf that she needed to have, because in an instant, she was out. She had just turned her body in such a way that she was just headed straight head first towards the floor. I mean, she might as well have just been lubed up in baby oil. She was, she was just out. She was headed for sheer destruction. There was no question about it. And right then, my dad instincts kicked in. And I somehow, in the same motion, grabbed her by her left arm and her right leg and just swung her right over the floor, Mission Impossible style. Her face, like this close to the floor, completely okay, like nothing ever happened, and she was saved, right? And there's a, there's a part of me, a place inside of me, that says that she did that on purpose, right? She did that on purpose. Because she knew, she knew that she was in no real danger because she knew her dad was going to catch her. So she just decided to go for it. 
She knew. And the reason why I think that's the case is because she still does this to me, all right? She, she actually still does this to me where she'll, she's been doing this for years, where, where she'll be at the top of a stairwell, at the top of the playground, and I won't even be paying attention. She'll just say, Daddy, and just leap, right? She just, just, it doesn't matter if I'm holding like a watermelon or her sister or knives. She just expects to be fine and that I'm going to catch her in that situation. She has in that situation total faith in her father, that her father is going to take care of her and catch her. But I remember the day when I saw that trust in her dad shift a little bit. We're at the pool, she's got her floaties on, and we're trying to just get her used to the water when she's young. She figured out at some point that that whole catching thing works in the pool. So she's getting up a million times out of the pool, standing on the edge and jumping, and then every time daddy is catching her. And we do this for like an hour. And every time I catch her and she's caught so far above the water that she doesn't even really get wet anywhere above here, right? For hours, just leaping and leaping, and every time her dad is catching her. Until that one time I didn't. She stood on the edge, fixed on her dad, jumped in, and I let her fall in. Her whole body plunged underneath the water, water in her eyes, water over her head, and when she came up, her whole world had been changed, right? Because for the rest of that whole day, she didn't jump to me one more time. She, I kept saying, come on, jump in. No, she was done. Because now she had reason to question what she had believed about her father. She had reason to question what she believed about her father. One negative experience, one negative experience had overridden years of miraculous saves, right, for her. Is that not what happens to us as well? Are we not like children when it comes to our relationship with our Heavenly Father? We trust in Him so completely in some circumstances, maybe even for years or for the initial part of our faith. We trust in Him until something, just one thing in our experience seems to contradict His character, and then we begin to doubt Him and who He is. From our perspective, He's failed us. From our perspective, He's not come through. From our perspective, maybe He's weak. From our perspective, He's let us fall Because from our perspective, all we experience is water clouding our vision, water shooting up our nose and covering our heads. Don't you think that the people of God in Esther would have felt this same thing? That after over 70 years of provision in a foreign land, yes, they were exiled, but God was providing for them in the midst of exile, that at one moment when the decree of Haman was read in the city squares, they would not have been questioning who their God is. He's been so faithful to the bride, but now, who is this God that he's not caring for us? In those moments, in these moments for us, we need to be reminded of God's faithfulness. Yes, we need to be reminded of his sovereignty, but we also need to be reminded of his character, of who he is, of what our God is like towards his people. Because unlike our earthly fathers, our heavenly father does not change and he never fails. So in order for us to have a faith that is stable, a faith that is not shifty or precarious, we need to understand who our perfect God is, the perfection of his character. And if we can see who he is, it will help our faith be stable. To understand this, I actually want to do a comparison. I want to do a comparison between the first character we see in this book and someone else in this book of Esther. The very first character we see in this book is King Ahasuerus. He's a worldly king. But if you were here last week, who is the main character of this book? That's right. 
God is the main character of this book. So I actually want to compare King Ahasuerus to our heavenly king. I want to look at the difference between the way that an earthly king responds to the way our heavenly king responds, to see a comparison of God's character for us. In chapter 1, we see this earthly king, this worldly king, when his bride refuses to come to him, he responds in anger. He casts her out, and he searches for another. When the bride of the heavenly king refuses to come, he responds with grace and provision and care. He seeks us out. He doesn't let us out of his sight. He pursues us to the other ends of the earth until we're reconciled with him. That's the nature of our heavenly king in comparison. The worldly king, when he's searching for his new bride, he only looks for those that are beautiful on the outside. Only cares about what they look like. When our heavenly king chooses his bride, he chooses the things that are base, the things that are ugly and despised and lowly according to the worldly standards. He chooses us, an unsightly lot that are ugly in our sin, and he chooses that people to be his bride. The worldly king, he took 12 months to beautify his bride with oils and spices just so she would be good enough and smell good enough to come into his presence. And the heavenly king, when he chose us, he took an unsightly, ugly bride and in an instant purified her and made her beautiful completely by paying for her with his own blood, by making her white as snow instantaneously in a moment. The worldly king could do nothing to revoke the decree which stood against his bride and her people. He could do nothing to revoke it. Our heavenly king completely revoked the decree that stood against his bride by providing himself as the payment against its demands. That's the nature of our heavenly king. Our heavenly king, our heavenly father is like no other. No one can compare to him. He is holy and completely without comparison. Church, sometimes we just need to be reminded of who our Heavenly Father is because we spend most of our time, most of our days, focusing on ourselves. We spend most of our times and our months and our years focusing inwardly on ourselves. And so what we end up doing is we end up reflecting back on who we see ourselves to be back onto God. We see that, yes, we as as mothers and fathers fail our children, so God must be failing me. My parents have failed me, so God must be failing me. People around me must, are failing me all the time, therefore God must fail me. And we've got to be careful not to do that because our Heavenly Father is not like us in that sense. He is completely different in His character than we are. We need to recognize that we should not reflect back on Him who we are. In fact, I actually think that God allows us to turn inwardly sometimes. He actually allows us to turn inwardly and focus on ourselves for seasons at a time because when we become so focused on ourselves and lose sight of him, when there's seasons where he just seems absent and the only space that we have in our heart which should be for him is filled up with ourselves, he appoints those seasons so that he can reveal to us the depths of our depravity and our frailty and our weakness in comparison to him. He allows us to go through those seasons 
so that we can understand that we can do nothing on our own and that he is so much different than we are. And when we compare ourselves to God, we find out that he is so much greater than we are that we end up standing in awe of God. This breathtaking awe we have of God when we we compare him to what we see in ourselves. We should have this all-consuming yearning to be with him. This this delight that's ever-increasing in our God as we experience him. And this this is what happens in the book of Esther when you see the people of God faced with their utter frailty and inability to fix the problem at hand. When they are faced with that and their God arrives, he comes on the scene and he fixes the issue himself. And our response should be the same as theirs. Awe, joy, gladness, and feasts and celebrations for what God has done because of who God is. Our God has taken an impossible situation, the problem of our sin, an impossible situation for us, something that we are so frail and so weak to do anything about. We can't do anything about our sin. Something that we had complete inability to affect on our own, he abolished it in the person and work of Jesus Christ in an instant. In that reality, we should find complete joy and trust in our God. What Jesus did on the cross is the thing that shows the character of God more than anything else. If you ever lose sight of who God is, turn your eyes to the cross. For in the cross you see who God is and how he loves you and how he cares for you so much that everything else in comparison should fall to the wayside. If we know this level of provision given through the cross, if we face anything else, There should be no question who our God is. We must simply look to the cross to remember. No situation could be more dire than the one our God has fixed. Our problem of our sin and our relationship with God being broken. There is no circumstance that is more difficult than that and God fixed it immediately. There should be nothing that we, as the beneficiaries of God's grace, should not trust him with completely. For he will arrive, he will act, he will provide, he will bring justice. He will not fail you because he cannot fail himself. And so this is what we see in the book of Esther. We see God's people in in amazing, difficult circumstances. And they must see not only that God is faithful to fulfill his promises, he's sovereign to effect those promises, Even in the midst of him doing so, he is good. Who he is, is a good God, and his people should trust in him, and so should we. We should trust in our God knowing who he is and what he has done for us as we look to the cross. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Lord, no more beauty could be seen than for what you did for us on the cross. No greater joy should we have than by looking to the cross and seeing you fix the problem of our sin in Jesus Christ. We ask, Lord, that you would give us now faith and trust in you, in who you are, in your character, in your person, in your goodness, and in your love for us, that we can walk in boldness of faith and not have a precarious face, but trust in the perfect nature of our God. We ask for your provision in Jesus' name. Amen.